Thank you, Alan. I'm going to sit this down. If you have your Bibles, I ask that you open up to the book of Romans, chapter 7. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. It is good to see you all here today. What a beautiful weekend we've had. Isn't this great? It's gorgeous out. Maybe all of our problems would be solved if we didn't have that dirty, rotten scoundrel, the law. You know, because it's the thing that makes us get in trouble, isn't it? You know, if the law weren't there, we'd be just fine. But as soon as we realize that someone's made a law about something, now we can't do it anymore. And, and after all, our, all of our problems are somebody else's fault because we're never doing anything wrong. That's just who we are. Anna Russell, she was a, a, an actress, a, 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 a singer, probably more importantly, a, a comedian. She wrote... Um, about this aspect of our sinfulness and our innocence in a little song she called Jolly Old Sigmund Freud. Let me read to you some of her lyrics there. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find and here is what he drudged up from my subconscious mind. Hey libido, bats in the belfry. Hey libido, bats in the belfry. Hey libido, bats in the belfry. Jolly old Sigmund Freud. When I was one, my mommy held, hid my dolly in a trunk. And it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day. And that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. Hey libido, bats in the belfry. You know, jolly old Sigmund Freud. And... Then I had the feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers, and so it follows naturally. I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy now. I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I did that's wrong is someone else's fault. Hey, libido, bats in the belfry. Jolly old Sigmund Freud. So let's just blame sin or, or someone else for all of our faults because it's really not our problem, right? And, and we can feel so much better because after all, we're innocent. You know, we, we didn't know it was wrong. We didn't know that what we were doing, you know, was not right. So let's just blame the law. Now, Paul has been talking about the law here in Romans as we've been building through it. And now his point here is this. It's not the law's fault. You can't blame the law. The law is not bad. Matter of fact, it is good. And then he goes on in chapter 7 to tell us why the law of God is good. So let's look, beginning in verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. What then shall we say? He tells us that the law reveals. All right, well, what does it reveal? Well, what then shall we say that the law is, is sin? Well, by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, once again, Paul is anticipating a question from his audience, his readers, as he's discussing this aspect of law. And he verbalizes what they're thinking. And then he says, he says however, if we have died to the law, as verse 4 says, and, and since the law causes all of our passions to be inflamed, which he tells us in verse 6, then maybe it's not my fault. Maybe it's the law's fault. And if that law hadn't just shown up on a scene, 
everybody would be happy, right? And so he, he answers their question, is the law itself sin? And he abruptly says, by no means. There's no way it is. Certainly not. That's, that's an absolute ridiculous thought is what he's trying to get across to us. And when we're, we're then given this purpose of the law from this passage of Scripture. He tells us the law reveals, it illuminates sin. So if you're in construction, you know what a straight edge is, all right? It's usually a metal bar or a flat piece of steel. And on one side, at least, there is a long perfectly straight edge and when you measure your cut up against it you find out where you've made the mistake all right well, that's the same thing the law does for us it is like a straight edge we measure ourselves up against it we find our imperfections it's like a mirror the shaw the, the, the law shows us what we are really like and i know some of us have those Expanding mirrors, right? If they enlarge four times, six times, ten times, why do we want to see all of our imperfections? All right? There's an old Chinese proverb that says, to an ugly man, every mirror is an enemy. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the mirror is not the problem. It's my ugly mug. <laughs> the mirror is innocent of it, it, but it does show our imperfections, all right? And the law shows us how sinful we are. Have you ever heard of ultraviolet photography? Under this new technology, dermatologists have been able to take ultraviolet light in a camera and they're able to take a picture of you and show you what it looks like from the sun's damage on your body. When we see ourselves just out in the open, normal, we look really healthy and we got that wonderful bronze glow from our tan. But what this camera does is it digs underneath all that beauty and it shows us where we have cancerous or precancerous cells on our skin. Isn't that the kind of camera you want to take pictures with at the family reunion? <laughs> we, you think about it. I mean, it, it, it can help us do this. And, and like this UV photography, the law was put in place to reveal to us the cancerous sin in our lives. It's killing us and exposing it for what it really is so that we can focus on cleaning it up, removing it. Now, if you turn back to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the law, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. Gareth Reese, professor up at Central Christian College of the Bible in Moberly, in his commentary on Romans says that Paul uses two different words in this passage for the word known. In the, in the first phrase he said, I would not have known sin, gnosko. And in the second phrase he said, for I would not have known what it is to covet, oida. Two different words, we've translated it the same way, our word known. But the underlying meaning behind that word known and known, they're not the same. That first word, gnosko, it implies a knowledge that is derived from personal experience. I've done something, I've, I've experienced something, and now I have a knowledge of what it is. All right? That's one kind of knowledge. I've touched the fire and it burns. 
I know that by experience. The word oida, it, it, it implies as well a knowledge, but it is the result of mental perception. Not that I've experienced it myself, but I have come to an awareness that that will burn. That is wrong. So we've got these two words that are used, but we've translated the same way. So what Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture, he says, I would have no personal experience or acquaintance with the working power of sin if it had no law that was given to me by God. All right? And then it would be, he would say, I would not have any head knowledge or understanding about the desires being wrong were it not for God's law. So because of God's law, I know the things that I'm doing are sinful. Because of God's law, I know there are things that I should not do by head knowledge. Paul then gives an example of how law illuminates our sin by using the 10th commandment when he brings up the word covet. All right? We know all of our commandments. You know, you shall you know, love the Lord your God, right? You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. We get all the way down to number 10, and here it is. You shall not covet. And by just quoting an abbreviated version of that 10th commandment, Paul is filling his readers with the, this understanding. They would just fill in the rest of it. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Nelson's Bible Dictionary defines covet as an intense desire to possess something or someone that belongs to another person. It means to desire greatly to lust after that which cannot legitimately be ours. So let's consider for a moment why Paul has chosen this specific prohibition. Coveting is in essence, it, it, it is a root of sin. All right? Matter of fact, Scripture says that the love of money, not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of it, it's the covet of it, is what is wrong. And it's often the case of all of our other sins. If we could peel back our motives and we could, we could understand then why we're sinning, it's because we want something that's not ours. And as a result of that desire, we do anything to get that which we want. That's covet. Matter of fact, Jesus deals with this in his Sermon on the Mountain there in Matthew chapter 5 uh, through 7. He, he talks to the, the people and he says, Well, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You're right, you're right, I've never done that. Ah, but I tell you, if you lust after a woman, the thought process, that desire, you've committed adultery. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And everybody says, well, I've never killed anybody. He says, ah, but I tell you, if you hate your brother, that desire of I can't stand him, you're guilty of murder. And all of our sins flow from that. And that's why it is like this root of everything else. Because the desire in us produces this behavior. 
So in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think it's fair to say that we live in a consumer culture today, don't we? And a consumer culture is built on coveting. Everybody's got to have the latest iPhone, right? And as soon as it comes, there's lines at the stores. Do you remember back in the 80s when there were the Cabbage Patch dolls, right? I remember working in a store in St. Louis in North City there uh, when I was in college, and they came out with the preemies, all right, the little bitty babies. The, the, and, and literally, women were fighting in the store pulling hair, knocking each other down to get that cabbage patch doll. And we had to separate them. Why? Because of desire. Covet. I've got to have it. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, but godliness with contentment. Listen to this. Godliness with contentment is great being content with what we have now it's true that law leads to sin and sin leads to death but here the culprit is sin itself it's not the law now, our autonomous culture makes fun or, or light of sin but the Bible condemns it in its harshest terms now R.C. Sproul has written and, and he tells us this he says sin is cosmic treason I mean, we are, we are rebelling against God of creation. He goes on and he says, Even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against God the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. It doesn't matter how white that little lie is. It's sin. Sproul goes on to point out that the Bible speaks of sin in three ways. He says, first, sin is described as a debt. Second, it's an expression of enmity. And third, it's depicted as a crime. He goes on and he says that our actions of rebellion and transgression of the law of God are not seen by him as mere misdemeanors. Rather, they are felonious. They are criminal in their impact. So, so we get this understanding that, that, that what law does to us. But the second thing law does is it... It revives sin. When you think it's dead, it brings it back to life. Verses, seven, or verses 8 and 9 there in chapter 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. 
Paul tells us that sin takes the law as an opportunity then to tempt us to do evil. All right? Sin takes the law as an opportunity to tempt us to do. The law doesn't tempt you to do evil, but sin, that desire within us, takes the law and uses it this word. This word opportunity, aforme, it refers to a base of operation. In other words, the staging area for an attack. All right? That's what that opportunity, we use opportunity, but it is this military base that is being staged. It's like the beachhead getting ready to go in for the battle. All right? it, it has another essence as well in its meaning, which could be referred to as uh, the starting point for an expedition, kind of like Camp Dubois over on the Mississippi River as Lewis and Clark were getting ready to launch their expedition into the Louisiana Purchase and discover this great land that we live in, all right? It was the beginning point. It was where they set up and they got ready to do it. So sin, he tells us, takes this as an opportunity. It uses the law as a base camp for an attack. It reminds us of where Cain is warned to do the right thing before Sin takes him down. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God tells Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And it desire, its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. You see, sin preys on people and looks for every opportunity to obliterate it. Ray Steadman writes this in his book about evil force. He said, sin is in every one of us waiting only for the right circumstance in order to spring into being. It's crouching at the door. All you got to do is turn that knob and unlatch and it's there. Forbidden fruit may taste sweet, but it has bitter consequences. Incidentally, when sin springs to life in us, it should humble us. I mean, it, should, it should mortify us, shock us. I mean, it, 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 but it should draw us near to wanting a Savior as well. Now, the last part of the verse does not attempt to teach that before the law there was no sin because we know there was sin. From reading what the Bible says, it was plain that sin was rampant. I mean, it was just as bad as it is today. I mean, it may have been even badder than where it is today. And what it means is that where the law does not exist, the full knowledge of what is right and what is wrong does not exist either. When the line is drawn by the law, our rebellious spirit moves into play. And we want to immediately step over that line and taste what we're not supposed to eat. The third thing is this, that law ruins sinners. We'll discover this in, in verses 9, 10, and 11. Now, in verse 9, it says that I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
In verse 9, the Apostle Paul is telling us that there was a time in his life when, when he felt alive, when he felt everything was wonderful and great in his life, and he was following after what he thought was good and, and, and righteous, and he was doing all the right things externally. All right? You, you couldn't say that he was an adulteress you couldn't, or adulterer. You couldn't say that he was a thief. You couldn't say that he was a murderer because he didn't do those things. And he kept the law in an effort to gain eternal life. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, he tells us about how good of a guy he was. Listen to this. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I'm a good guy, is what he's saying. I'm better than you. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel. I was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was a teacher of the law. I got it. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now that's how he saw himself, all right? He, he honestly believed, I was perfect. However, when the Spirit opens eyes to the fact that the law could be broken just as easily in his heart as well as in his actions... Paul died. He came to realize that all of his effort, all of his righteousness, all of his hopes, everything about his life, his dreams, were just dust in the wind. And it all blew away because his actions did not supersede his thoughts. He failed. Isaiah 6, 46 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I mean, it works the same way for you and me. When we see ourselves as we really are through the eyes of God and through His Word and through the law, it has a way of shattering our self-image. We have had our sins of the heart exposed. In fact, the knowledge of the reality of sin is devastating. However, it's the first essential step to salvation. In Jesus, before we can be saved... We've got to realize we're lost. So we need the law to show us where we've missed the mark. Romans 7.10 says that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And Paul is telling us here that, that he had trusted the law to give him life, but the reality was it just proved that he was dead in sin. And, and it delivered to him condemnation and eternity in hell. The law cannot save. Keeping a list of do's and don'ts 
cannot save you. The law is simply an instrument of God to prove to us that there are actions even in our heart that are wrong. It is not meant to give you life, but it is meant to bring you to life because it points to the fact that you need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. I think it's a lesson many in our day need to learn. There are a lot of people who are trusting in some kind of religious activity or work for their salvation, and that's not going to cut it. Nothing can save your soul but Jesus. Matter of fact, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your, your own doing. It is a gift of God. All right? Not a result of my works so that no one can boast. There's nothing I can do to make myself right before God. But there's something He can do. You see, the law tells us how to live, and then it condemns us for not living up to it. And in this statement here in Romans 7, Paul is addressing those Jews who believe that the law provided life for them. But the law doesn't. The law, it doesn't extinguish the sin in our life. It ignites it. And then it leads to death. So, Leviticus 18, verse 5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The only way that we're going to live by the law is by fulfilling the law all the way down to the core of our heart. The problem is that none of us can keep commandments, and so they end up killing us. Now, the law would have given life if it had been perfectly obeyed, but it's impossible. So Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And in James chapter 2, James reminds us in verse 10 there, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I may think I've done really good, but a 99% doesn't cut it. It may be an A in math, but not in the eternal scheme of things. Paul is saying that before the law let him have it, he thought he had it all together. But when the law came in, it ignited his passions, and it caused sin to spring to life in his body. And before all this happened, he thought he was alive, but sin had sucked the very life out of him, and he was dead. Now he tells us in Romans seven eleven, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul uses the word deceive, exabatao, which means to 
beguile thoroughly. That's a word we don't use too much, isn't it? How about seduce wholly? It's going to get you. All right? It deceived me and it led me astray. Now, I want to think of some ways that, that sin deceives us. Have you ever heard sin say these words to you? I'm going to call them sin's ten deceptions. First off, you're not as sinful as the Bible says you are. In fact, you're a pretty good person, right? Maybe what God says is unreasonable and oppressive. How about, this really isn't sin anyway, you're, you're not angry, you're just frustrated. It's not adultery, it's just a relationship. It's not lying, you're just stretching the truth, right? How about this? Go ahead and do it. No one will know. Right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Eh? No one will know. We can keep our sin secret. <laughs> Have you ever heard sin tell you? Everyone's doing it. Or how about you can't stop this sin or break this addiction because you've been doing it for too long. It just got a hold of you. Or, or this will satisfy, fulfill, and make you happy. You won't get caught. I can guarantee we'll get away. Maybe God will forgive you anyway. But then after hearing, or after sin, we hear the words, well, you've really messed up. And God won't forgive you now. You might as well just keep on sinning. You've already blown it, right? Don't underestimate the deceitfulness of sin. God has personified sin. It's not some inanimate object that you can pick up and move around. It appears in Scripture somehow to have, even though it brings death, it somehow has life in itself and it operates against us. Someone once said that if you hang around the creek long enough, eventually you're going to fall in. That's my granddaughters. <laughs> Every time they come, they get to the creek. They come back wet, even though they were told, I didn't mean to fall in. They do it. Hebrews 3.13 warns us about the hardening that can come as a result of sin's deceitfulness when it says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That means if I'm not encouraging you, I could be contributing to the hardening of your heart. Sin deceives, and according to James 1.15, it also leads to death when he says the sin when it is conceived, the, the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings death. 
You see, so sin had the opportunity afforded it by the law that it had given it the life of Paul and, and had lulled him into believing that a life lived by keeping the law was a life that he wanted and he would be saved. That was his good Jewish background. But he came to realize that a life lived under the demands of the law was nothing more really than a living death. And when he saw the truth of his situation, he did what many of us do this morning, or many of us may need to do this morning. We, he threw off his dependence upon the law, and he embraced Jesus as the only one who could bring salvation to his soul. Listen to what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. But whatever gain that I had while I was this wonderful Hebrew of Hebrews and Pharisee of Pharisees and all this, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, where He was able to conquer death and hell and sin. See? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. But it's through Him. And if some of you are trying to be good enough to earn your way into heaven, you need to know it's never going to work. The only way you're going to get to heaven is by the grace and the goodness of Jesus. The final thing is this, the law reflects sin. So we come now to the answer to the question that was asked back in verse 7. All right? he, he lays this out for us. We want to know, is, is the law sin? Well, no, it's not. But what is it? So he says, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It, it, it is holy. This isn't that the problem with the law. The problem is with the law breakers. The law is holy. And holy, God's holy law is, is set apart and is full of purity and majesty and glory because God, the, the giver of that law, is holy. While the law is holy, it cannot make you holy. It's righteous. And God's law is impartial. It's just. It's fair. It's never wrong. The law is righteous, but it can't make me righteous. He tells us the law is good, and God's law is good. It's, it, it, it is the way to, to live, and it tells us that when we fail to live that way, that we've messed up. And while the law is good, it can't make you good. Matter of fact, verse 12 here of Romans 7 is summed up, or maybe it's pre-established in Psalm 97, or Psalm 19, verse 7 and 9. Psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with the law. Because it shows deep depravity and our need for a Savior. Let's look at Romans 7.13. He said, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law kill me? He says, By no means. Well, if it wasn't the law, what was it? He says, It was sin. Sin producing death in me that through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I mean, there's something within us that resists that phrase, sinful beyond measure, but it means that because of that, we would become exceedingly sinful. We would be superabundantly evil in our lives. And Paul uses the worst word that he can think of, sin, and then he puts this strong adjective with it to demonstrate how utterly depraved we become. Someone once said that sin deceives, it defiles, and it finally destroys the law illuminates, it ignites, and it incinerates. But in verse 12, Paul's conclusion is that the law is holy, righteous, and good. And if there's a problem, it's with the offender and not the law. I think there are those in our day who don't like the Bible to be preached in its entirety. They're opposed to preachers naming sins. As long as you don't name my sin, I'm okay with it. But as soon as you step on my toes, we got a problem. I'll go somewhere else. Because the scripture tells us we'll go to places where they will preach what our itching ears want to hear. It's okay. You can live in sin. God will love you anyway. But the Bible is clear that the law was given to point us to Jesus as a guardian until the time that he comes, to keep us back from those things that are sinful. It was given so that man could see that we have a need for a Savior, and then we would turn to him and be saved. It was never given as a means to righteousness or salvation. It was given as a sign point post to point us to where we will find real life, and that's in Jesus. You see, the law can never save a soul, but it can point us to the one who can. And we know who that is. It's a person. And it's Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And he fulfilled the law and all of its righteous demands. And by his sinlessness, he perfected life. But as Jason said, God made him to be sin for us. And he put him on that cross and he allowed him to die 
for our sins so he could substitute his life for ours. The grace of that sacrificial gift. I trust that you will at some point in your life place your faith in him that you can receive the grace that he offers that you can die to sin that you can be buried <laughs> it's done away with but that you can come back to life and in chapter 6 Paul tells us what happens there when you died to sin it was when you're baptized into his name and you're raised into a new creation, into a new life. Your sin is gone. It no longer has any control over you. The law is not your enemy. Remember, it has been your guardian to lead you to Christ. And then you live eternally with Him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for today, for the grace that you offer in Jesus, for the law that demonstrates to us how wicked we have become. Even into the core of our being, to our very heart, the desires that we have, this, this aspect of coveting that leads us to do the things that we know are against what your standards are. But Father, you've even told us that desire in our heart to lust after something else that's not ours, that does not belong to us. That, Father, that is itself what kills us. Sin. But I am so thankful that you have taken my sin. That you have removed it from me as far as the east is from the west. That you have washed me by the blood of Jesus and you've made me whiter than snow. You've purified me. You've sanctified me and you've justified me in your sight because of Jesus. And it's in His name that I rejoice. Amen. Let's stand together.